people have often misunderstood congregationalism. Sometimes people present it as something that makes each congregation just alone by itself. They might call it being independent. Sometimes it's called separatism. Well caught. Thanks, brother. One writer has defined it as, quote, the claim of individual congregations to act as if they were alone in the world, independently of all other Christians. Close quote. On the other hand, some of congregationalism's champions have presented it as straight and simple democracy, tying it up with the inalienable rights of man. I think neither of these are good understandings of the pictures of church life that the New Testament gives us. What I understand to be the responsibility of the congregation in no way inhibits cooperation with other congregations in missions, in education, in evangelism, in disaster relief. So many ways that churches can cooperate together. Just on that disaster relief, I think of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is arranging an offering to care for the Christians in Judea who are starving because of a famine. And he's working with the congregation up in Thessalonica, the congregation in Corinth, other congregations to take their monies together to help the saints in Jerusalem. That doesn't in any way compromise the responsibility each of those congregations have for themselves. I think it does mean that nobody from outside can mandate something for a particular congregation either in a matter of discipline or a matter of doctrine. Discipline is who belongs to the church, who's a member. Doctrine is what does the church teach. So relying on the clarity of Scripture, perhaps more than a Presbyterian polity would do or an Episcopalian polity would do with bishops over multiple churches, we assume that God will lead His people as a whole to understand who should be recognized as members of the local church and as leaders. What should be believed in the local church as the teaching of Scripture and what should be done. Now some people dismiss this as simply a matter of enlightenment political theory. I was talking to another pastor one time who said, Mark, the only reason you're a congregationalist is that you're on Capitol Hill. You're where the Congress is, where the American government is seated. That's the only reason you think this way. Well, I don't think that's true. And I also think that Greek city-states existed long before the United States of America. And Greek city-states are where we even get this secular idea of democracy. And these letters of Paul are written to churches operating in Greek city-states largely. 
And they were very used to, as citizens of those city-states, voting. Voting is not a modern idea. It didn't start with Zambia in 1964 or the United States in 1789. Voting is happening in the ancient world very commonly. If you look back at the earliest Christian writings we have outside the New Testament, you see voting going on in churches. In Clement of Rome's first letter to the church at Corinth, written around 96 AD, we see elders being commissioned, quote, with the full consent of the church. Find language like this all the time in the early church. Augustine, famous African pastor, was elected by his congregation there in Hippo to be their pastor. He didn't even want to be their pastor. He was drafted. He was elected. And then he became willing to serve. Certainly Christians in the past have understood this to be taught from Scripture. Congregationalism is simply the understanding that the last and final court of appeal in a matter of the life of the local church is not the Bishop of Rome or the Bishop of Constantinople or Lusaka or Kidway. It is not some international body or some national assembly or conference or convention. It is not the president of a denomination or the chairman of a board of trustees. It is not a regional synod or a ministerial association. It is not a group of elders inside the local church. It is not the pastor of the local church. Pastors, hear me clearly on that. The Bible does not teach that the pastor of the local church is the final authority in the local church. The New Testament teaches that the last and final court of appeal in a matter of the life of the local church is and should be the congregation itself. And this seems clearly evidenced in the New Testament in matters of doctrine and of discipline. In matters of the admission of members and of the settling of differences between them. Let me look at four specific matters in the New Testament. Perhaps you can find more over lunch, but let me just point out these four. First, in matters of dispute between Christians. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Let's go to that famous passage. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells here of this dispute between brothers. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now again, I mentioned this in the previous session. Notice to whom one finally appeals. What court is the final judge it's not a bishop it's not a presbytery it's not your denomination's appointed leaders it's not a pastor it is not a board of elders it is not a church committee it is we read the church that is the whole local congregation whose action must be the final court of appeal or go to the passage we were just looking at about the establishment of the first deacons. Go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, you'll see very similar idea there. 
Look over at Acts chapter 6. It's an important event in the life of the early church. Again, there was that problem over the distribution of the church's resources. The problem was evidently requiring a good bit of the apostles' attention. So we read here in chapter 6, beginning verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. Close quote. And then Luke goes on to name those that the church chose. Now, one of the complexities of using the New Testament as a guide to our church life is the presence of the apostles in these churches. And you understand that difficulty. How fully can we later elders and pastors and overseers assume the apostles' practice as a guide to our own? I mean, can we define doctrine? Can we delineate error? Can we recall the words of Christ as those could who were with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, who were taught by him, who were specially commissioned by him to be the foundation of his church? Are the names of those of us who are elders here to be inscribed on the foundation of the new Jerusalem as the apostles' names are? Friends, the answer to all those questions is no. Our problem with the model of the apostles is that in following it, present-day church leaders might ascribe too much authority to themselves when they don't have the competence to deserve such authority. They were not, in fact, witnesses to Christ's earthly ministry and His resurrection bodily. And yet in Acts 6, we see these very apostles handing over responsibility, recognizing, as it were, a responsibility of the local congregation, the local assembly. The same kind of ultimate authority they seem to be recognizing under God that Jesus spoke of the church having in Matthew chapter 18. Now following these examples, Paul also taught that the discipline and doctrine of a local church is held in trust under God by the congregation. Paul, when writing to the Corinthian church, told them specifically in 1 Corinthians 5 that they were to judge those inside the church. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, Appoint as judges even men of little account in the world. So in matters of dispute between Christians, the congregation as a whole is what the scripture holds out as the final court of appeal. Now, specifically, number two, in matters of doctrine. What about in matters of doctrine, teaching? All the letters of the New Testament, except Philemon and the pastorals, 1 Timothy and Titus, were written to churches as a whole, instructing them as a whole on what their responsibilities were. Even in matters of fundamental understanding of and definition of the gospel, the congregation seemed to be the court of final earthly appeal. Certainly God is the final appeal. But the court of final earthly appeal to discern what God's will is. So that example I started to give in the last session, Galatians chapter 1. You look at Galatians chapter 1. Paul calls on these congregations of fairly young Christians to sit in judgment of angelic and apostolic preachers. Even himself, he says in verse 8, if they should preach any other gospel than the one which the Galatians had accepted. Well, who was to be the judge of that? 
The Galatians were. Not their deacons, not their elders. The Galatians. Paul doesn't write merely to the pastors. He doesn't write to the presbytery, to the bishops, or the conference, to the convention, or the seminary. He writes to the Christians who compose the churches. He makes it quite clear that not only are they competent to sit in judgment on what claims to be the gospel, but that they must do this. They have an inescapable duty to judge even those who claim to be messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ by the consistency of their new claims with what these Galatian Christians knew themselves to have been the gospel. So you can think, you can say, look, I'm in a church with apostles or bishops or presbytery over me. Therefore, I don't have that responsibility. That's the responsibility of those guys. You can say whatever you want. The Bible says it's the responsibility of the local church. So if you're here in an Anglican church or a Presbyterian church, we love you for preaching the gospel, but we're telling you God will not recognize the authority of that presbytery or that bishop. You know, St. Luke's local Anglican church has the responsibility whether or not they are accepting heresy being taught or not. They can think some bishop is responsible, but God knows that congregation that sits there and listens to it and pays for it. They are responsible. So you can fiddle with your polity whatever way you want. But the truth is, according to Jesus and the New Testament, the local church that sits and listens to and pays for and therefore will be taken by the world as approving is the very body that is ultimately responsible for what is taught. I look forward to questions on this later this afternoon. Paul makes this point again in that verse I brought up earlier in 2 Timothy 4.3. When he writes counseling Timothy and the church in Ephesus on the best take to attack to take with false teachers. When he describes this coming tide of false teachers in the church, he particularly blames in 2 Timothy 4.3 those who, to suit their own desires, gathered around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So whether it's in selecting these teachers or paying for these teachers or proving of their teachers, of their teaching, or simply in consenting, being willing to sit there and listen to them while they say false things. The congregation of the church in Ephesus, Paul envisions, is culpable. They are held as guilty for the teaching that they tolerate, as are those who teach them. They have their own accountability to give. In basic doctrinal definition then, the congregation as a whole is the final court held out in Scripture. So if you're agreeing with me, I'm not talking to you for just a moment. I'm talking to those of you who don't agree with me. Okay, those of you who don't agree with me, I am warning you. I am telling you. The Bible does not have another reading on this. We have great Christian freedom in how we decide we're going to elect elders. There are all kinds of things that Scripture is not clear on, which means we have freedom about There's no minority report on this one. It is clear that the responsibility cannot successfully be handed over to some other body. It's just not there in the Bible. So your denomination can have any study committee at once and decide they're going to organize themselves in this Episcopalian way or this Presbyterian way. You do whatever you want. I'm telling you what God's Word says. There's nothing like that in there. Now, teachers have their own separate responsibility. James 3.1, you know, that we will give. There's no doubt about that. But that does not evacuate the responsibility that the congregation has. And you should be very careful before you teach the members of your church that they do not have that responsibility. Because I think the Lord Jesus disagrees with you. 
And he is going to hold them to account regardless of what you teach them. So you will serve them well if you teach them that each member of the church needs to know and understand the gospel and have ears for it and support teaching which teaches the gospel and not support teaching which does not support the gospel. Lots more we can say about that, but let me leave that for Q&A time later. Third, in matters of discipline. In matters of discipline. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the most famous passage about this. Paul appeals here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, again, not to the elders. The letter of 1 Corinthians is not written to the pastor of the church there. It is not written to the elders of the church at Corinth. It is not written to the deacons. It is written to the congregation. All of the imperative verbs are appeals directly to every member of the Corinthian congregation. He appeals to the whole congregation to act. If you look down through 1 Corinthians chapter 5 there in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 11, in verse 13. So this is not a matter merely or finally for Paul the Apostle or whatever the elders of the local Corinthian church may have had. This was a matter for the congregation as a whole. They had all accepted this guy who was now sleeping with his father's widow. They had all accepted this guy into their church. They were letting him take the Lord's Supper there. They were tolerating him openly. So they were now all implicated in his sin. They now, Paul was saying, had to either turn loose of this man or turn loose of their claim to be Christ's disciples. They couldn't keep both. That's what Paul was telling him. The congregation of the church at Corinth had this responsibility. The congregation as a whole was in that sense the final court held out there in Scripture in this matter of discipline in the Corinthian church. So too in matters of church membership. Again, Andy implied this in the first session today. If you look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn to this please. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verses 6 to 8. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people tell me, you know, congregationalism is not really taught in the New Testament. I know what you mean by that. We don't find a manual of polity here. But once you start seeing it, it's amazing how much of it there is there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 6. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. So the Corinthian congregation had evidently acted to punish this man. Now we don't know who this man is. This man may be the guy from 1 Corinthians 5. We would like to think that because that means he repented and he was recovered. We just don't know. It doesn't say. Whoever it was, they had acted to punish him. And in so acting, they had done so, as it says here, by the majority. Now, preachers, some of you here at Central African Bible Baptist College have studied the original languages. Some of you have studied Greek. Some of you know that you can pull out great deep truths from the original languages. So let's do that here. The word there for majority is the word plenum. Plenum in the Greek. And what that really means in English is... The majority. It's exactly the word that you're going to find in all of our translations. 
Translation is, 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 a, is a good science. And while it is a science, it's often very straightforward. It means majority. That is, a majority of the church members who would have voted. That is, the greater part of the members were consenting. The punishment seemed to have worked. Paul said here it was sufficient for him. And so now Paul is writing to the church as a whole, urging them to accept the repentant man's repentance, to readmit him into the church. But you'll notice, even as the apostle, Paul can only exhort. Because in matters of church membership, the congregation has to do it. So he's exhorting them, they need to do this, but then they need to do this. The congregation needs to be the one who readmits this man because the congregation as a whole must be the final court in matters of church membership. So it is in the scriptures. So I've given you a basic outline of congregationalism there, what we see of it in the New Testament. Now there's a lot of things this doesn't mean. Simply saying that scripture presents the congregation as the final court of appeal, the final earth, the authority about the meaning and application of God's word in our lives does not mean that the congregation is always right. Sometimes people will point to congregational churches that have gone badly wrong as if that proves congregationalism is wrong. Really? So if you have a couple in your church that have a problem in their marriage, does that prove marriage is bad? No, friends, congregationalism can be what God's word teaches and congregations can make stupid decisions. They can be wrong and what they're not inerrant. God's word is inerrant. Congregations are not inerrant. Husbands have authority in marriage. Are husbands inerrant? Every wife here says, no, they are not inerrant. <laughs> you know. We we all know that. Every humble, honest husband here knows that. We are not inerrant. Does that mean we don't have authority then? Oh no, we do have authority. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So you mean there's authority that's not inerrant? Yes, there is. Yeah, in this fallen world, there is authority that's real authority that's not inerrant. That's what the congregation has. When Paul wrote to Timothy, his disciple, and the pastor of the church in Ephesus, in in that 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he describes those days of coming evil, he says in 2 Timothy 4.3, when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say with their itching ears, want to hear. It's very interesting. The more you stare at that passage, That as culpable as the elders of an assembly are for false teaching, and elders are responsible for their false teaching. That's a different talk. It's a very important talk. Elders definitely bear responsibility for what we teach. Paul does not only suggest that those who hear are responsible, which was implied even by Galatians chapter 1 that I mentioned, verses 7, 8, and 9, but he's also clear that they will exercise the... Ephesian church coming up will exercise that responsibility badly. So there's an example we have of congregations and being biblical, but that not teaching that the congregation is inerrant. The Ephesian church will be congregational and wrong. You need to understand, congregation does not guarantee you against all false teaching. This is clear from this example in 2 Timothy 4. It is painfully clear from the history of of the church. The centuries spent largely in darkness and even by continuing error in congregations of brothers and sisters in whom we recognize much biblical wisdom. I think perhaps the clearest uh, example of that in my own life, in my own world, looking around with who I work with, would be my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. 
So if you're sitting here as a Presbyterian, I'm so sorry, I'm using you as an example of error, but here goes. Came to a Baptist college with a teaching on congregationalism, what did you expect? Okay, here we go. We can love you in the gospel, but here I have preached in Presbyterian church after Presbyterian church, who I trust feels quite certain that what they're believing is true. But I'm quite certain what they're believing on this matter is an error in their understanding of infant baptism and of church polity. So even if the congregation sincerely believe that, that congregational belief does not make it right. What is in the Bible is what is right. The merely fact that I'm saying this compellingly and with earnest urgency doesn't make it right. You can have a brother come up and be very nervous to speak and say like, well, I don't think congregationalism is right. What about this verse? He could be right in what he's saying. Don't be taken in by my energy in speaking. You, you want to look at the Bible. What does the Bible in fact teach? We have many people around the world that are in congregations that think they know the right thing to do, but the congregations are clearly wrong. In history, you have even congregational churches voting to fire people like Jonathan Edwards. Well, how wise was that? I don't think that was a wise decision. They had every bit of the right to use that kind of authority, but that was, I think, a very poor use of it. We need bring no doubts about God's sovereignty by speaking of His church's errors any more than we do by confessing our own sins. Even rightful authority established by God in this fallen world will err. Let's say the Zambian government or the American government makes mistakes, do things that are wrong. Does that mean they don't have legitimate authority? No, they have legitimate authority. Now, at some point, can an authority lose its legitimacy? Yes, if it's terrible. But it's got to be really terrible. Because you look at how Paul is writing in Romans 13 about the Roman government, which had good points and a lot of bad points. And yet he understood that as being legitimate authority. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The portrayal of congregationalism in the New Testament is quite an incomplete picture. We get it in snatches, sides, and assumptions. It is clearly present, and I think the more you're aware of it, the more obvious it starts to become throughout. Nevertheless, the peripheral, assumed nature of it would seem to leave us quite a bit of freedom in our local congregations to exercise wisdom in how we do it. Like some of the questions, brother, you asked in the earlier session. Specifically, how we do things, there might be great variety among us. We'll try to pursue it as wisely as we can. But we do it according to the general rules of the word, as the Westminster Confession puts it. That means that a church in which the congregation only holds the title to the building that it meets in is in some sense a congregationally governed church. Because the congregation could always decide simply to pull the plug on the whole thing if they don't like what's going on there, if they didn't agree to it. Even more, a church would be considered congregational if it has the final say in an issue of, say, the budget of the church. Or the call of a pastor. Well, that's a kind of congregationalism. If you add to that, the congregation is the final court of appeal in terms of doctrine and discipline, disputes and membership. You seem to have a congregational church not unlike the models given us in the New Testament. Now, how much further a congregation decides to involve itself corporately in decisions about the leadership of the church, or if your church is large enough to have a staff, the staff of the church, or the church's budget, that's a matter of prudence, of wisdom, of discretion for decision within individual congregations. Two different congregations, 
could do that differently. You know, there's not such a thing in the New Testament as a nominating committee or trustees. But local churches can decide to have those. You look in vain for finance committees or small group leaders. But just because we believe that the Bible is sufficient as the Word of God doesn't forbid such structures. It just relativizes their authority. We can't claim that because our church has this kind of authority and we have this kind of structure that everything we do therefore must be right. No, everything we do is subject to the Scripture. What it simply is showing us is that those kind of structures that we set up that aren't in the New Testament, they're not of the essence of the church. We can disagree about them. We can change them. We must submit ourselves to the wisdom of our individual congregation that we're part of. Why does all this matter? If congregationalism is simply the reality of our lives together as Christians in churches, the challenge for us isn't to create it, but to recognize it and to order our church lives appropriately. We should respect the structures that God has created and his wisdom in doing so. Friends, the verdict of history is in. While it's clear that no certain polity prevents churches from error, from declension, from sterility, the more centralized polities seem to have a worse track record than does congregationalism in maintaining a faithful, vital, evangelical witness. Now, congregationalism's record is made even better when the purity and the visibility of the local church is protected through the biblical practice of believer baptism, through rejecting infant baptism. I mean, just look through the history of the church. The papacy, the Bishop of Rome, has wrought havoc on self-confessed Christians. Bishops have hardly done any better. Even assemblies and conferences and presbyteries and synods and sessions, when they have moved from being advisors to being rulers, have overstepped their scripturally warranted authority and have brought more trouble than help. You couldn't preach Calvin's gospel in Calvin's church in Geneva today because it kept Calvin's polity, which was a corrupt Presbyterian polity with centralized authority, rather than leaving it where the New Testament does in a congregation of people who know themselves to be born again by the gospel of God and all understand themselves to be responsible for protecting that gospel. Could it be that the gospel itself is so simple And so clear. And the relationship that we have with God by the Holy Spirit's action and giving us the new birth is so real that the collection of those in a particular place and congregation who believe the gospel and who know God are simply the best guardians of the gospel. Doesn't that seem to be what we see in the scriptures? Phil took me and the team around to see four different local churches yesterday. Some of you brothers are here. It's so good to see you in your places of ministry. I want you to know that your local church is a better guard of the gospel ultimately than Phil is. Or than I am. Or some other author you like. Or some, the board of trustees of the Central African Baptist College. No, your local church is who in the New Testament the Lord Jesus has entrusted the gospel to. In the community that you're in. You must teach your members carefully. They must know the truth. All of them. They don't have to know every bit of theology you know. But they need to know the basic truths about God, His holiness and goodness. About us, our being made in His image, but our being sinful. 
about Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, living a perfect life, dying on the cross as a substitute for all of those who turn and trust in Him for their sins. Him being raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, presenting His sacrifice to His heavenly Father who accepted it, calls us all now to repent of our sins and believe in Him. Every member of your church needs to know that that's how you have forgiveness and new life in Christ. That's not something just for pastors to know. Not something just for college graduates to know. Not something just for elders to know. That's for every Christian to know. Every member of your church is to know that and understand that. Well, friends, we could get to the much more practical things of how does congregationalism work. But I wonder if so much of that is so practical that if that's better left for our Q&A time in the end. Let me just say a couple of things. We read earlier today Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, this didn't mean, of course, that this writer was telling these Christians to become menial hand waiters to their leaders. Now, the seriousness of the topic in mind is clear. This had to do with the account these leaders will give for their work. They'll be giving account to God. Now, does this have any wider implications? I think it does, in that it's always helpful for Christians to have in mind the seriousness of positions of authority in the church, particularly in matters of teaching. You think of James 3.1. Teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment. So the account that we elders must give is finally not to our churches. The account we give is finally to God. But you see the importance of all this. In all the corporate responsibility our congregations have, I'm not suggesting that God leaves the church to operate at all times, kind of like a meeting where everybody votes about every issue we can imagine. That just that wouldn't work. No, we should give thanks to God for the leaders that He has put among us in our churches. We should recognize those elders. We should trust those elders. The words that we see in Hebrews 13, 17, obey and submit, they are serious words. They're words that we may not be used to using much today, but they're words that are applied in the New Testament to us in society and at work and at home and our marriages and with God and in the church. And they do require on our part a certain amount of trust. Sometimes people say, well, that kind of trust has to be earned. And I understand what is meant when that's said. You know, you get a new boss at work and people wait to kind of see what's it going to be like. Even when a new friendship starts. They want to see how their friend will weather difficulties in the relationship, how they persevere, whether they just benefit themselves or they're beneficial to others too. So we say trust is earned. But I think at best that attitude is only half true. At the same time, the kind of trust that we're called to give to our fellow humans, our fellow imperfect humans in this life, be they family or friends, employers or government officials, or even leaders in our churches, can never finally be earned. It must be given as a gift. A gift in faith. More in trust of God than in our leaders. Those whom we understand to be God's gifts. Brothers and sisters, I think it is a serious spiritual deficiency in a church either to have leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. A church member's basic attitude needs to be either trust your leaders or replace them. 
Don't say that you acknowledge them and then not follow them. If you disagree with the elders on a recommendation, have a good reason. Go and talk with them about it. Other than the Bible, you are the elders' main source of information about you. It's good for the elders to know what you think. Let me encourage you to talk behind your elders' backs. Meet in secret. Plot to encourage your leaders. To encourage your elders. Strategize to make the leaders' work a joy and not a burden. Uh, That, the writer to the Hebrews says, will make your leaders a blessing to you. How many churches today languish in an evil combination of selfish leaders and stubborn members? Such congregations usually shrink and wither away. You know, some churches have wonderful congregations but have recognized the wrong people as their pastors, their elders, people who show themselves to be at best careless and at worst just charlatans. Too many of us have been involved in such churches in the past. But friends, God will provide for such churches in His grace. Some churches have wonderful godly leaders, but congregations full of complacent, self-centered people. If such a pastor can stay and patiently teach, I think that congregation can be renewed. And if not, such a congregation will, I think, bear a strange judgment on that final day for wounding good under-shepherds of the flock of Christ that He's given them as gifts. But the healthy church though filled with imperfect members and leaders, is marked by godly initiative and service, godly teaching and obedience, godly leadership and membership, elders and congregationalism. Much more I could say about this, but lunch is coming. Let me see if there are any quick questions now. Take about five, seven minutes for questions, and then we can break for lunch. Here comes a microphone. Just stand up and give your name. And then ask any question you think would be of general interest. Yes, Tom. My name is Wilbroy Tandak. First and foremost, I'd like to appreciate your presentation. I've benefited a lot from the nine months material. I use them to train my leaders for the first time on the early vintage. I respect you so much. Uh, I'll just combine the two things here. I just want to suggest to the organizers of such seminars that we think through the topics that we present. We need to say the importance of congregationalism. Right there you see the bias. You are one of the speakers at TPOG. And if there is a seminar everyone would want to attend, it's TPOG. Because the focus is on the gospel. As you look at all those seated uh, here, we're coming from different backgrounds. I first one brought students from our college. Uh, congregationalism is a subtopic under church government. And uh, there's so much we can discuss under church government. As our brother was talking about elder qualifications, yeah. you know, husband of one wife, and you know. Uh, metaphors of the church, ordinances or sacraments of the church. I personally spent 10 years researching on... Well, I just have a, is this a question? Yeah. Because we don't want really to want time for a rebuttal. Okay. We're just looking for a question. question. Yeah. Uh, it can also be a comment. My proposal is that, probably if we are addressing congregation yeah. 
Let me imagine we had Kevin Young or Egan Young sitting there. They'll give a different view, like uh, who runs the church, yeah. four views of church government. Yeah. So first I'm struggling, before I come to the question, I'm just struggling with the whole idea of congregationalism. We have brothers and sisters from brethren circles. In Zambia right now, some people can't even distinguish between elder, pastor, bishop. So by the end of the day, we may not be served so well if we just address that because this is not what is obtained uh, on the ground. Probably addressing an issue under church government to serve us well. So the first question is why focus on congregationalism? It was not everyone who's coming here. No. It's coming from that. Thank you, brother. I, I think the, the yeah. last one is what's your take on primacy interference? You briefly came out yeah. because uh, it's also an issue. Yeah. It's a concern. Yeah. And the question is yeah. why just focus yeah. on do we have an agenda? I think I understand the question. Thank you, brother. Uh, your first question was a question not to me, but to Phil, who organized the conference. And it's a criticism. It's not a question. You're disagreeing. You have every right to do that. I would say that at least in America, we would understand every group of Christians, every group of people, has a right to have a conference on anything they want to. And I would say that Phil was very honest about what this is about. You chose to come to it. You know, so that's... <laughs> you don't have to agree with everything. Yeah, you know. point is, um, um, just of T4G. Yeah. This is not T4G. No, just a minute. It builds the church. Yeah. Uh, there's so many things we agree on. Yeah. Why just focus on one where we are yeah. putting agreement? Under church government, there are so many subjects, even eldership, that edifies, builds the church. Uh, these may pretend, a number of these are coming from yeah. different. And yeah. also, if somebody was like. Brother, I think you've made your point. Thank you so much. Phil can respond to that if he wants because he's the one who came up with the thing. So that's really over to Phil. I'll just tell you as a congregationalist, I actually think what I've said has been edifying. I think it does build up the church. I think when you're standing in heaven, you're going to agree with me. I think what I've said is in the New Testament. I think there are a lot of other things I could talk about that I do talk about. You can go online and listen to 25 years of expositional preaching about all kinds of stuff. But it's not a fundamental doctrine. Congregationalism is not a fundamental Brother, Phil has, has elected to have this because he thinks it's according to the Bible. So, I, I understand you disagree, but when I, I've attended Presbyterian conferences before, I don't stand up and object to them being Presbyterian. I understand the brother thinks it's in the Bible. God bless him. You know, so he'll, he'll teach that. He's trying to edify the church and serve Christ. I'm not going to stand up and eject to him doing that. I disagree with him on those points. But there's so much I agree with him about. So I would just say that would be a good way for you to, to experience. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying there are different forms of church government. Yes, there are. And some are right and some are wrong, according to the New Testament. Well, brother, that's where we can just disagree. Yeah. Uh, I've tried to lay out the evidence that I think is there in the New Testament. Um, yeah, which I'm happy to talk to you about in private. What was your second question? You had a second question. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot on that in the New Testament. So in that last talk I gave at the end, I suggested there's four hints that I think suggest that there are roles like senior pastors in churches. But no, I understand on the eldership, I have one vote. I don't have any more than that. 
But I informally have a lot of authority because I'm the one who's usually teaching God's Word. So my voice will appropriately carry more weight. But yeah, each local eldership gets to, I think, figure out how to recognize that combination of added weight that the main preacher would have and being one of the elders. So it's a tension, I think, all preachers feel on their elderships. Yeah. Phil, did you want to say anything in response? No. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I got a couple of questions like that during the break. I don't think there's a clear answer in the New Testament about that. So I think there's liberty about how to do that. There's prudence that you try to use. Uh, What we try to do to capture the different sort of stages that Jesus seems to suggest in Matthew 18 is we, as an eldership, will look into a matter first and then we will bring it to the congregation. But then we wait before any action because when when, when Jesus says, tell it to the church... And then he says, if he will not listen to the church, ah, wait, that assumes the church has had some time to hear it and think about it and discuss it. And as it were, say something to the individual in sin. So there's a lot that's gone in between those two phrases, we think. And therefore, we wait two months to our next members meeting before we would suggest any action. So let's say if Bob is committing adultery, and there's not a dispute, he admits he's committing adultery His wife knows he's committing adultery. Bob's a member of our church. But Bob is not evidently repenting. Then we as the elders would bring that to the church. We would inform the church. Bob would know we're going to do that. Bob's wife would know we're going to do that. We would do that. But then we would take no action other than praying for Bob. We would encourage those who have a close friendship with Bob to please speak to him. Please try to work with him on this. Implore him. But then in two months' time at our next members' meeting, if there had been no uh, repentance on Bob's part, the elders would move to the congregation that we excommunicate Bob uh, because of his unrepentant sin. Yeah, Does that make sense? But if your church has a different practice of that, you're, you're just trying to be faithful and capture those different emphases. That's, that's just the way our church does that. A lot to your other ways, you guys try to be faithful with those commands. Yeah. Do we have time for another, Phil? One more. Yep. And by that you mean like the main preacher of the church? If you want to go online, I got a whole talk I did on this last year at a Nine Marks conference called How to Find a Pastor, uh, in which I try to lay that. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, 
Yeah, you, you can throw that into the question box if you want a longer answer this, this afternoon. Uh, I, again, the New Testament does not clearly answer that. So I think we have, wis- we have liberty in that matter uh, to organize our church in different ways to find a good preacher for his church.